Let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are faithful, that you never leave us, you never forsake us, that we can completely rely on you, that you were the one who is trustworthy. We can lean on your everlasting arms and be rest assured in the security of your powerful promises. And so, Lord, as we open your word today, as we discover what you might be teaching us, will you fill us with courage and with hope for the future that you alone can give? And we pray all of these things with great anticipation, and we pray them in the strong name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said together. Well, good morning and welcome to all of you. So glad to be with you and to have the opportunity to be able to share in the fellowship of what God is doing and moving through His Spirit in this community as well as around this city and around the world. I, for eight years before becoming your pastor, lived in the struggling mission field, to which I'll show you a picture, of Southern California. In fact, in the community of Newport Beach, where we lived just a couple of miles north of our community, that picture of Huntington Beach was the next town over, and it is known in particular for being Surf City, USA. It is where they have the U.S. Open Championship for surfing. What you need to know is that I did not grow up in California, nor did I grow up near an ocean. And so I have no affinity, practice, or any effort with surfing. And so when I turned 40 years old, a group of guys from all over the country gathered because a bunch of us had all turned 40, and we did all kinds of things. We played golf. I know how to play golf. We ate food. I know how to eat food. We did all of these different activities, but we all decided, even though none of us had ever tried it before, doggone it, we're going to take surf lessons. And so here's a picture of what we looked like getting ready to get into the water. I just want you to know there are no after pictures, only before. (laughs) We get in the water. I barely know what to do with this board. And I can promise you I have never been humbled and pummeled as hard as I was in that time. There are reasons that 40-year-olds don't try to learn surfing at that age. I mean, I had salt water and sand and cuts and like every nose, sinus cavity, ear. I remember at one point like hitting, you know, falling over the board and and just getting, you know, pounded all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. And I mean, it was like a scene out of a movie. We came like limping and carrying our boards and we're walking after the hour-long mess, you know, lesson. And, And I'll never forget the surfer dude that was giving us the lesson and the one that was working with me. He looked at me and he goes, look, man versus ocean and ocean wins again. He did not get a very good tip that day. I think I was only on the board for a total of three seconds max standing up. We construct our lives in such a way as that we feel competent and secure and like we are in charge. And every once in a while, we have a little moment that humbles us and reminds us that we're not in control and that it's a really big world out there and if you're not careful, you can get pummeled 
with one thing right after another. And yet God does something unexpected, even in those moments where we feel like we're being punished. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. And while you are turning in the New Testament to Mark chapter 4, let me remind you of where we are in our quest journey. We're exploring God's story together with our dream of a Bible in every hand and God's story in every heart. It is our hope that we will, throughout the course of these next couple of months, discover the ministry how Jesus is not only doing this earthly ministry, but that he is also the Messiah, that he's not just a miracle worker, he is the Lord. And then we get to see the mission of Jesus' lordship and his saving work go throughout the world and how we believe that this journey continues as we are invited into it as God is making all things new. Last week, we talked about how Jesus was an authority figure, that how the gospel of Mark is written where one of the key words is, is that he taught them he was a person of authority. And last week, we noticed that he had the authority to forgive sins. This week, we're seeing Jesus' authority over creation, and next week, we're going to see his authority over evil. And so as we pay attention to a familiar story, may the Holy Spirit do something unique within each and every one of us as we listen to God's Word. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side, and leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So there's this Presbyterian minister and he dies and he finds himself on his way to heaven. He is standing right before the pearly gates, but it's a surprise to him that he's in a little bit of a line, and there is somebody standing in front of him that he does not expect to be there. He's in a leather jacket. He looks a little rough around the edges. He's got a funny New York accent, and so the Presbyterian pastor is waiting patiently as one by one they go through the pearly gates, and this guy comes forward as St. Peter calls him. And he says, what's your name? And he says that his name is Nick. And what's your occupation? The fact that Nick was a taxi driver. And St. Peter consults his list and says, oh, yes, yes, yes. And they come and they bring out this silk robe and put him on him. And they, and they put like a golden staff in his hand. And this, this golden chariot pulls up and, and, and takes him and takes him and whisks him off into some glorious future in heaven. And the Presbyterian pastor is thinking to himself, if Nick the cab driver is going to get that kind of treatment, imagine how I'm going to get treated. And so he steps forward and announces his name and his occupation that he was a Presbyterian minister. And St. Peter consults his list and says, ah, yes, I see you. And they take this 
kind of tattered terry cloth robe and they put it on him and they give him, you know, kind of a, a, an old rickety wooden staff and a little slow donkey comes meandering over that he gets to get on to ride into his future. And the, the Presbyterian pastor is indignant. He's like, how dare you? Do you know who I am? I am a, a Presbyterian minister of the such and such Presbyterian church. And St. Peter says, ah, yes, let me explain. Up here we work by results. For you see, when you preached, people feared nothing and they slept. When the cab driver drove, people feared God and prayed. (laughs) Now, obviously, we don't believe in works righteousness and that that's the way that heaven is really going to be. But part of the reason that that story is so fun is that there is some truth to it. That what has happened, particularly in Presbyterian churches, but in churches all over this country, is that we have worked really hard, as I said last week, to pull the conflict out of the Bible. One of the other things that we've done is we've kind of pulled the fear out of the Bible. We want you to read it, to be comfortable with it, to understand it. And and while those aims are good, I wonder if we've done you a disservice and accidentally taken something out that is supposed to really belong. For you see, if you're paying attention to the story that we read today, it's a story that is all about fear. And in fact, in the story, there are two different kinds of fear. Let me give you the technical terminology for that fear. There's the bad kind of fear and there's the good kind of fear. The bad kind of fear in the Greek is called delos, and this kind of fear is a cowardly kind of panic. And so when Jesus rebukes the disciples and the boat after they wake him up, and he says, why are you so afraid? The the New Testament tries to, as we interpret it and translate it, try to help you to understand that this is a different word for fear that's behind it. Why are you so afraid? Why are you panicking? Why are you so cowardly in this moment? Don't you trust me? Jesus is saying. Over and over again, Jesus will tell us, it's one of the most frequent commands in the New Testament, be not afraid, be not afraid, be not afraid. And Jesus is not saying in that moment that we should never experience the emotion of fear. Fear is a good warning symbol that something needs to change, that that something is wrong. But what we have a tendency to do is to stay in that emotional state And so what Jesus is saying when he says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, is, hey, stop panicking. You can't allow your life to be controlled by fear. You were never meant to stay in a perpetual state of anxiety. That's that's not where we're supposed to live. And that the flip side of that is, hey, don't you trust me? Don't you know who I am? So that's the bad kind of fear. The good kind of fear that's in this passage is the fear that comes towards the end of the story. In verse 41, it talks about the fear being megaphobia. Over 138 times in the Old Testament, the phrase, the fear of the Lord is used, and it's almost always used in a way that's encouraging us to need more of it. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what, according to the Old Testament? It's the beginning of wisdom. Now, let's be clear, it's not the end of wisdom. You're not supposed to stay there. You're supposed to grow from it. But I think one of the things that we have done in the modern church and with all of our preaching and teaching and what we do in the church is that we have undercut it and we don't even let people start with the beginning of wisdom being some sort of healthy understanding and fear and awe and reverence of who this is. Let's look at closely at verse 41. Say it with me. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this indeed? A simple word, a simple phrase. All of a sudden, it becomes calm. And so when the wind and the waves blowing over the boat, and some of these people were experienced fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, it says that they're panicking. And then it says when Jesus calms the storm that there's an even greater fear beyond that fear. And that fear, what are they afraid of? They're afraid of Jesus. There was an awe and a wonder. Who is this indeed? Now I feel like I need to explain part of what's going in our world that helps us to understand why this is so different and difficult for us to even read a story like this today. I want to introduce you to two phrases that people who have a kind of a broad view of philosophy and understanding the way that we think and we relate to one another, we tend to think of a fixed view of reality or a flexible view of reality, a fixed view of ourselves or a flexible view of ourselves. And for most of human history, the way that we've kind of encountered and interacted with the world is that we tend to view the world as some sort of fixed reality and that we ourselves have to be flexible as we fit into that world. An example of this would be with most occupations growing up. I'll give you an example of it from my own family. When, when my family immigrated to the United States and they lived in New York City, they had been candy makers in the old world, and they were candy makers here in the new world. And for generation upon generation upon generation, the Conwishers made candy. Some of you wish that I still made candy instead of preached. But there was a certain flexibility over time that my grandfather didn't have to make candy even though that was the family business. He went and he got a degree and became a pastor. And then his son, my father, got to become a physician and then I reclaimed the family heritage of being a pastor. There was some flexibility. For most of human history, you need to know that, that they didn't have that flexibility, that if if your family did something, it was the apprenticeship of that which was hand down to generation. And so there are good benefits of reality and the world being more flexible today than it has been in history. There are certain injustices that have gotten corrected and ways that we relate to one another that we've been able to change society and community and to do that for the better. I am not saying that reality ought to be fixed in every way and that we ought to just acquiesce to what the world is around us. 
But I'll tell you this. One of the greatest problems that we have today is that we think of ourselves as fixed. My desires, my wants, my wishes, my identity, who I am is fixed. And the object of the world around me is to be flexible and accommodate to who I am. And you see this play out in almost every aspect of our society and our world, whether it's gender or whether it's sexuality or whether it's other ethical concerns. The shift behind the shift is that I'm at the center and you all need to accommodate to me. And this spills over into the spiritual life. For most of human history, we have seen ourselves needing to be flexible because there is this fixed reality of the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end of this God. And what's happened is now we think God ought to accommodate to us as opposed to the other way around and we have lost the awe and the wonder and we have forgotten to ask the question, who is this that even the wind and the waves will obey him? And so what does all this matter? We tend to worship the God that we want instead of the God who is. I wrote this down because I wanted to get this just right. We want a God who is predictable and yet we have a God who is mysterious. We want a God who will be part of our lives and yet we have a God who demands all of our life. We want a God who will love us just as we are but we have a God who cares way too much to leave us as we are. We want a God who will give us a stress-free and pain-free living but we have a God who calls us to take risks and to step out in faith. We want a God who will help us out of a jam every once in a while but we have a God who desires for us to be light in dark places places and to even persevere in our pain. Our God is not that small. And he's certainly not safe. Author Mark Buchanan wrote a wonderful book a couple of decades ago called Your God is Too Safe. And in that book he says this, The safe God asks nothing of us and gives nothing to us. He never drives us to our knees in hungry, desperate praying and never sets us on our feet in fierce, fixed determination. The safe God never whispers in our ears anything other than greeting card slogans and certainly never asks that we embarrass ourselves by shouting from the rooftop. A safe God inspires neither awe nor worship nor sacrifice. A safe God woos us into escaping reality. Do you see what's going on here? We think that God needs to fit our expectations instead of the other way around. And so we make a God in our own image. And I need to tell you that friends, as a pastor, when I see people go through their challenges, like the surf lesson, when the water and the wind and the waves get above their head, those are those moments where you realize that fashioning a God in your own image cannot help you, it cannot save you. And so Oswald Chambers puts it like this. It is the most natural thing in the world to be scared And the clearest evidence that God's grace is at work in your heart is that you do not panic. 
And yet the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else, whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Friends, anxiety is at an all-time high today. We have, in many regards, easier living today than the generations before us, and yet we're more afraid, we're more worried, we're more anxious. Why? Because our gods are too small, too safe. And every once in a while, there's a pinprick of a disease or a natural disaster that reminds us that we're small and we're weak and we are not in control. One of the things that you might notice in today's story is this, is that Jesus says, quiet, peace, shalom, be still to the storm, and that the verb that Mark uses to describe what Jesus does, it says that he rebukes the wind and the waves. This is the very same verb that Mark will use to describe Jesus casting out the demons from people. Jesus has authority over creation in the same way that he has authority over the dark spiritual forces of this world. And I love the phrase that what happens in today's story is that the creation meets its creator. If you have never had your knees buckle in faith and wondered who is this God, who is this Jesus, if you find God with great ease, I would posit today that you probably have never really met him. I love this image of art, of the storm being calmed. And the storm is calmed inward to outward, radiating from Jesus is the peace and the quiet of the chaos. I want to teach you a phrase the non-anxious presence of Jesus. Will you say that with me? The non-anxious presence of Jesus. Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the midst of the storm because he's not afraid. He's not gonna panic. And if you're with Jesus, you and I can be a part of the vocation of what our world desperately needs right now to be a part of the non-anxious presence of Jesus in your neighborhoods, in your work, and in our world. I shared with you at the beginning of the sermon that we lived for a long time in Southern California, and it was quite the journey from San Antonio, Texas, where we used to live before that, to Southern California. And the journey I'm not referring to as the cultural gymnastics that was the difference between those two. 
I want to show you a picture of the church that we used to serve. This is the St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, and in this community, it was this neighborhood church, and you know, the fellowship hall was basically outside because the weather's good for 98% of the year. And while we were there, kind of discovering what was going on, I was initially contacted because I was doing some doctoral work out in Southern California when they said, we just, we just want to have a lunch. Will you come down and have lunch with us? So I come and have lunch, and they say, we'd like for you to consider being a candidate for this job. And I said, listen, I'm, I'm honored. You know, one of my friends, Jim Birchfield, who I'm in my doctoral program with, has been an associate at your church for 15 years. Everybody knows that Jim has been groomed to be your next senior pastor. If you need to put my name on a list to say that you talk to somebody to check a box with the presbytery, I'm okay with that. But everybody knows that Jim's going to be your next pastor. And they said, we love Jim. But over the course of the six months, we believe that God is doing something new in us and in this church. And no, we're serious. We want to talk to you for real. We start a long process of conversation with lots of ups and downs and tears and prayers. And eventually we decide and they decide that this is what we both feel called to do which was gonna be very upsetting to the congregation because most of the congregation assumed that Jim was gonna be their next senior pastor. And so they told the congregation that they have completed their search and have a candidate, but it's not Jim, and the whole church is in a huge, topsy-turvy, upside-down tumult. Someone on the committee leaks because they don't like the decision. I haven't told a soul in San Antonio, Texas. I'm walking through the administrative offices and I see one admin crying and I see another admin crying and I see another admin crying. And it turns out that some people started emailing members of my staff. And they were attempting to bribe them to say if they had any dirt on me that they could discredit me. I had to call an emergency staff meeting. All of the sudden, the question of, dear heavens, what have I done? I have two young kids. Word spreads quickly, jumps into articles. Pastor friends call me and say, Rich, you're committing career suicide. You need to pull out now. to which for some strange reason, even though the world was falling down around me, I had this peace, this gift, this non-anxious presence of Jesus. They have these things in kind of the old northern church tradition. It's called a candidating sermon where you're supposed to preach and then they vote. It's the most artificial thing in the world. Then again, you vote with your feet every week. So I kind of get it. It happens all the time. And so I'm about to walk in to preach a sermon, and I'm with my predecessor from that church in California, and I'm, I'm one for cracking a joke if I'm nervous. And so I turn to John, and I'm like, John, 
Let's take a poll right now. What do you think the vote would be if, uh, if people voted before they heard me preach? And John said, Rich, in all seriousness, it's 50-50. I hope you have a good one. I preach, congregational meeting, I answer questions, two and a half hours of debate. Part of the agreement is I go down into a cell in the basement with no cell phone coverage, no Wi-Fi, just me, Jesus, and the LA Times. It's a good thing it was the Sunday edition because I needed to read. And there was chaos. I was underneath the sanctuary. There was chaos above me. I should have been freaking out. And for some strange reason, the waves could keep coming. And I wasn't worried. I don't tell you that to say that I'm some super spiritual person. I tell you that to remind you that the peace, the shalom of Jesus is a gift. You know what the point of this story is? The point of the story is that Jesus gives his peace even when his followers only have this much faith. grace. They vote, and they get a 28% no vote. I learned in polity class that what they referred to is anything over 10% is what they refer to affectionately as a clergy killer. They come downstairs, they tell me the vote. Only 72% of the congregation wants you. Are you ready to start the job? I am. Go back to the hotel. Girls are little. They're in a hot tub outside. Kelly, the two girls, a pagan couple and a Jewish man. And I walk up and they're like, so? And I nod my head and the two girls start slapping the water saying, Papa got the vote, Papa got the vote. And the pagan couple says, we're going to start going to church. Because that's the craziest story we've ever heard. Are you in a storm right now? Do you need some of the non-anxious presence of Jesus? Do you need him to wake up and to say to you, into the wind, into the waves, peace, quiet, be still. In my holding tank, there was a psalm, that, a prayer that took on a whole new meaning. And to conclude this message, I want to share it with you and have you say this with me as our closing prayer today for this message. Will you say it with me in unison? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm. 
and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind.